I think it is very important in this life when you make a mistake to own it. We all make mistakes. We all say things that don't come true. So I am here to apologize and specifically to you and to our viewers on YouTube because my mustache is still here. <laughs> it's funny because there's going to be an apology forthcoming from me too, but not oh. for my mustache. I'd like to apologize for your mustache. Yeah. Although at least you took the handlebars off to a degree like it was it was getting pretty 70s porn stashy it it was and it i'm thank you (laughs) because that is the look i was going for um i've always been able to grow facial hair like grade eight i had the goat like the chin goatee you know what i mean right um for whatever reason as soon as the facial hair came in the hair on top of my head stopped but i've always been very uh blessed to be able to grow good facial hair so november comes around i always love to take part and you know we all get anxiety and we all have health issues and stuff like that so raise some money for men's health but i just i shaved the handlebars off um just to see what i would look like with an actual mustache and i thought to myself you know what i actually don't hate that i'm gonna keep a good looking guy (laughs) I, i i still look creepy but i'm not as creepy and i thought it just would be funny if this year, I decided to show up to Christmas wearing like an old man vest or a sweater. And this old man had him wearing right now and just take Christmas photos with a mustache and an old man vest. So Please, if that's what you're doing, finish it off with a pipe. Right. Yes. I would How think great that's would that look. Absolutely. And I got to say a little bit jealous here because obviously no hair on the head. Also never been able to grow facial hair of any substance whatsoever so go and suck it popey because it's not fair you have more you have more on your head in like two inches on your head than i do in my entire top of my head so listen it's just as an aside to all of this it's more work than i thought it was going to be when i finally decided look i i could have given up in high school because my forehead was a five head Mm -hmm. but eventually i was probably well, I, I bet you I was early 40s when I finally just decided, like, it's there's no point in, in keeping anything growing on parts of my head. So I start shaving it down. I take out the clippers once a week. Sometimes I get really lazy and it's only every other week. And the problem when it's every other week is you look like the guy who's still trying to hold on to what little you have. And I don't want I don't care. Like, I'm I'm fine with my baldness, but it's it's a lot of damn work, Popey. Like, you're you're far more. You know, you, you take far better care of the top of your head than I take care of mine. I need to, though. Otherwise, I look like I am 70, <laughs> just normal hair pattern. I'm not okay. kidding. I haven't shaved my head in a couple of days. Look at that. Look at that horseshoe. It just <laughs> dies. <laughs> I'm with you. I get right? it. And hey, on one more quick po- uh, point on the Movember note here. Uh, how about our buddy David Schooley pushing you over oh, the $500 mark? Like, what I, a great guy. I got to say, when I looked at your total, I'm like, we got to get, and, and you were so like, oh, I'm going for 300 bucks. Shut up yeah. with 300 bucks. Let's go. You're Chris Pope. Well, there's so many people that. that fundraise for Movember. I yeah. understand. Five years ago, I think I got up. I was up pretty high, at least in my mind. Nowhere near Farwell for higher, but I was high. But I just, uh, it's not an expectation that I want. I think I'm just going to do it because I'm going to see a lot of people more so than the fundraising. I want to have the fundraising because I do want to raise money for this great cause, 
but it's more so just having the mustache and having people's mind understand that men also have all these things that we're going through as well. And it's important Absolutely. to end that stigma and talk about it. So that's why I rock it. And then I don't want people to be like, Oh, you're raising money. And then I'm like, Oh no, I'm not this year. I'm like, Oh, so you're just wearing a mustache. Well, many different layers here, but um, yeah, I I'm glad that uh, our friend, Mr. Schooley got us over the 500 mark. And that was very nice of you to send that tweet out. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to David Schooley. Yeah. Award-winning broker, Remax mm-hmm. Twin City, big uh, supporter of City News 570 and, and the Mike Farwell show. He's known as the negotiator these days. Maybe, you know, Pulpy, now I'm thinking, I got a contract renewal coming up. Maybe <laughs> I should get David in my corner for that too, eh? <laughs> Can we throw OHL stories into that contract? Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. If I get David on my side, it's a, a big, uh, whole big part of the, the package there. I, uh, I have so- loved our last two guests, our guests this week oh. and last week, because those were two guys that around my age that I used to look at following the OHL playing a lesser level of junior being like, man, those guys are so sick. (laughs) And now being able to talk to them and get the stories, it's been great. Yeah. They're, they're pretty good. They come from an era that I think is almost our sweet spot Mm -hmm. in terms of we go there and further back to really start. Cause as we know, and I, I think it's, it's even more specific to the game of hockey guys seem reluctant to really open up unless they've been away for long enough. And I think that 20 year window where our last couple of guests have come from, and then even further back from that, uh, that's kind of our sweet spot. I think it is. And that's the sweet spot, right? Where social media started. Good point. Very good point. Change. That that was a game changer. It was a major game changer. Yep. And a lot of people that have played more recently, don't want to give the good stories because some of their former teammates and guys they played against are still playing and they don't want to bury them. Right. That's the biggest thing. And I completely understand it. I just think anyone who's coming on this podcast or who knows about this podcast, we try to keep it pretty light. We just want, we don't want like the bar stories. We don't need to get into that. Exactly. We just want some fun stories about the person that we're asking about. So when we ask Robbie shrimp last week, about Corey Perry. We want to know what he is. What's he like around the rink? What's he like, you know, when you guys are playing video games in the basement, stuff like that, or, or some funny, you know, dinner stories, which we get quite often. And we got from Shrempy and we definitely get a few good ones this week too. And we can hear about Mike Richards as a teammate and yeah. as a leader, for example. So reminder to you, like, we feel like this might be the sweet spot. Maybe uh, you want more recent, maybe you want older school. I don't know, but it's pretty wide open with OHL stories. So let us know. Farwell and Pope at gmail.com is the email address. Poper on Twitter is at underscore Chris Pope. I am at Farwell underscore OHL. Uh, where you see the podcast, wherever you get the podcast, give us a review. Give us a, 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 a like, like, you know, give us some of those stars on there. Let us get things going here as we continue to bring on the best guests we possibly can for your listening enjoyment. And of course, did you mention the email address, Farzi? Farwellandpope at gmail.com. First thing I mentioned, thanks for listening. Well, I was listening, but I was also thinking, oh, I need to check that email. I wonder if you (laughs) talked about it. There's a lot of things going on in the mind. It's December 6th at the time of this recording. It's a busy time of year, you know? You got your Christmas shopping done, by the way? You know what? Most of it. I'm going to do a few little, I always, I kind of like the last minute stuff. It makes me feel like I'm really contributing to somebody's Christmas, but for the most part, I'm in, I'm in good shape right now, which is a good Mm -hmm. thing because as of this recording, we still have six games in the next 12 days to broadcast before we get a Christmas break. So 
we actually had an email. I just checked it while I asked you that question. And um, I'm not going to lie. It's from a while ago. So I apologize to Sean. Oh, Pulpy, he, come on. I know. Stay on top of this stuff. I, 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 well, it's going to take some time to find the guest he requested. But I, I love this idea, Sean. Okay. He says, hi, guys. I love the podcast. I listen every week. I didn't just add that. Okay. That's what he said. Are you sure? How long ago yeah. was this? Was this after a good podcast? Because some of it them was got sucked. Tuesday, November 9th. Oh, just uh, only a month ago, Sean. Yeah, Thanks I know. For listening, buddy. Um, but he said, uh, one guest that I would love to hear would be former longtime 67s assistant coach Bert O'Brien. In addition to his own stories, I'm sure he would have a few great killer stories too. Thanks and keep up the great work, Sean. Because I think Bert O'Brien would be a fantastic guest. You know he, what, Sean? He was killer's right, literally his right arm, well, left arm, I'm assuming killer sat on the right at the bus. Probably his left left arm for his old Mark career. my word. That, that one's happening. That'll be, yeah. dare I say, almost easy to get Bert O'Brien on here. I think Perfect. we can do that. And you know, that makes me think we, we got a lot of love out in the Eastern conference, Pope. You know, there's always mm-hmm. this Western conference bias and you and I admit to it. In fact, mm-hmm. we were just talking off air today because listen, we cover a team in the West. You see the, well, this year you're only seeing the West, but you get those two games against the East. There's only the one crossover, et cetera, et cetera. And arguably West has been best for almost 20 years in this league these days but a lot of love for this podcast coming from the eastern conference i want to think it's because of all the cornwall royals references we make hey bring back the royals baby let's go um i love the fact that we're getting love out of the east and i i personally love when we can interview people from the east because i think a lot of how do i word this a lot of uh people who know about us and follow us on a day-to-day basis are probably from the Western conference for sure. Because the majority of the time that we spend in this league tweeting about teams and, and so on and so forth and talk about is Western conference teams, whether that's before COVID or during COVID. So I think when we get some Eastern conference people, I learn stuff and I hope our viewers and listeners learn stuff as well. So, and well, and we've had countless generals and Peterborough Pete's, Right, Scott McCrory, Jeff Tui, Dave McQueen, yeah, Sherry Bassin, Brian Kilray, yeah. But we got to get into some of those lesser, uh, some some of the younger franchises. Let's say Oshawa and Peterborough have been around forever. Let's get into some of the younger franchises and maybe not some as successful franchises like a North Bay. You know, let's let's get some people around the North Bay back in the day. You know, listen, I want a Kiprios on here. I want him yeah. bad. I think well, we should be, be able awesome. to make that happen, right? Because we're great don't forget North Bay's new but old. The North yeah. Bay Centennials with Burt Templeton mm-hmm. back in the day. Like those are the those are the guys we got to go that after. That logo was sweet back. Oh, then. so good, right? So good. Uh, anyway, speaking yeah, so of North Bay and the Eastern Conference, uh, Brandon Coe, congratulations on signing with the San Jose Sharks. Yeah, I mean, how season? do you not? How do you not sign a guy that's basically on a two point per game pace right now? Right? Come on, guys, tearing it up. Well, and let's let's call a spade a spade. When the Eastern Conference teams do come to town, we don't follow it as closely. And so when they do come, you you pick, or I shouldn't say pick, but you tend to concentrate during the game on five or six players that you deem you know to be the the ones who are going to affect the game the most when they're in Kitchener or when we're in that city and. In the past couple of years, Brandon Coe has been a good player, but I wouldn't say he's been a, a star in this league by any means. What a season for this guy. Like he's making me feel like an idiot for not knowing more about his game, but by his season, he's having. Well, and, and let's be honest, when you get 
essentially two viewings for an entire season. What what real, you know, yeah. analysis can you give about a player? That's why when we right? see scouts, we see them repeatedly. We were talking to one of our friends who scouts with the Philadelphia Flyers about two weeks ago when he was in Kitchener. He's like, this is my fourth time through. Now we're going out to, you know, cover this league or this part of the league, and I won't be back until after Christmas. So, you know, keep an eye on this guy and this guy for me and let me know that sort of thing. But of course, you're not going to make any kind of great judgment of a, of a player seeing him twice. He, that's why the team that we cover, you get to see 68 times. And this year in the Western Conference at 10 games versus Owen Sound, 10 games versus the London Knights, 10 games versus the, the Guelph Storm. We're getting a lot of viewings of the Western Conference teams. You need to unmute yourself if you want to keep talking. Sorry, I had to cough. I think it's uh, twelve team or twelve games against Guelph this year. But yes, I, it, it's a lot of those teams that we see. And I think by the end of the year, we have a pretty good understanding of those players. When you only see the guy twice, it's kind of tough. So I just want to tip my cap, like because I'm sure he, I'm sure he went down there to San Jose and they sent him back, Doug Wilson and Co. And just said, hey, we want to see you go and dominate the OHL if you want a contract. We need to see you take that next step. And NHL teams often challenge players like that to go back to the OHL and be a top guy, and then we'll sign you. We, we need to see that out of you. <laughs> Brandon Coe says, okay. <laughs> I can how do about this. The, how about this? Two points a game by December. <laughs> well, now you get your contract. So congratulations to him. Still with the Eastern Conference and something we have learned, you and I touched on last week on the podcast, but it's worth repeating here. Uh, we now know how the Ontario Hockey League is handling COVID outbreaks, and and mm-hmm. I think uh, they're handling them very well. We weren't sure when we had those few cases with the Saginaw Spirit, when at least they couldn't make the trip, all the players make the trip up to Kitchener, but nothing more came of that. We're now heading into a second weekend where the Sudbury Wolves will not play any games. So I think the f- main thing to keep in mind here is we've still got a dozen players on a junior hockey team. I know the cases are largely asymptomatic or mild symptoms, but these are 12 players who are ill with a potentially deadly virus. So let's keep them in our thoughts and kudos to the league for the abundance of caution that also led to the cancellation of a Peterborough Mississauga game last weekend. They just want to be sure of these things. And and hopefully, because I can only imagine the nightmare in scheduling that follows, but kudos to the league for making sure that safety remains paramount here. I think, Honestly, they've done a just a fantastic job. I really do. Um, in getting out ahead of it, letting the people know that this was going on in Sudbury, not trying to, with COVID you can't, but not trying to hide it, but doing the, going through the proper channels, releasing the proper info and having the stomach to cancel games because I'm sure that was the last thing David Branch and co wanted to do this year was to ever cancel a game after being the only major junior league to not play last year to cancel games. I think they were hoping fingers crossed that they wouldn't have to do it, but I think they've handled it perfectly and we're hoping all the best for the Sudbury players. Of course, as you mentioned, mostly asymptomatic or small symptoms, but this would be so two weekends to me, that's 14 days, roughly. Right. So now it's the following weekend that I want to keep an eye on to see just how the league handles. So that's the 14 days. Are we going to extend it another weekend to it to be sure? Or are they going to push? I don't want to say push the players. Are they going to allow the players back to play? So I think they've handled it great. And I think the big decision is upcoming. 
one more piece of news league wide and that is or at least one more piece that we wanted to touch on and that is tucker tynan uh your boy i know you loved him in st Catharines with the niagara ice dogs he is now a member of the sault st marie greyhounds and why not add a guy in goal that's got a little bit more of a pedigree no disrespect to the guys that the sioux was rolling out but you've got your You've got your three-headed monster there and Cole McKay, Ty Cartier, and Rory Karens tearing it up offensively. Goaltending was a bit of a weaker link for that Sioux team. It's a topsy-turvy kind of wide-open sort of year. I think the Sioux positioned themselves as contenders in the West early on, and I think this just solidifies the stable. Nice move. How many times have we said that for Kyle Raftis? Yeah, it was a, when I saw it, I was like, really? I wasn't sure... I didn't think Tucker Tynan would be dealt from Niagara, to be honest. Like, I didn't even think it was a possibility. And then I'm assuming you look, is it a three and a fifth or third, third and, and eighth? Third and eighth. Yep. Um, I thought that was kind of low. Same. Right. right? Um, but as much as Niagara really needs to recoup some picks for sure. Um, so I completely understand why they did it. Um, and I, I just love the story of Tucker Tynan because of what he went through all those, like that was so, so scary to see and for him to come back and put in all that work and all that effort to get back to where he was and to the Ontario hockey league after that extremely nervous situation in Niagara. I just, I wish nothing but the best for this kid. Like I would love to cover an OHL championship. So I'm always in the back of my mind, hoping I get to, I've, if not Kitchener this year, I hope it's Sue because I, I want this kid to have nothing but the best after going through what he went through and his family and what they went through. So uh, nothing but the best for Tucker Tynan for when you look at it, you, you mentioned that he's obviously coming out of the East, but to me, the story's the West, like the Sioux just picked up, I think a bona fide number one in this league. And now they're only five points back of London right now for the tops in the West. They obviously have the offense. They have the power play. They had two young goaltenders. And I think Ivanov's a good goaltender and he'll be, he'll be even better next year. And they might run a two headed monster. I don't know, but I just think you put a solid goaltender in that net. Now you don't really have to worry as much as they were in goal in the Sioux. Yeah. And listen, if you want to catch London, you got to compete with Brett Prochu. It makes it really interesting for Guelph, which has been a real nice story in the West. But and it seems like they've settled on Owen Bennett as their guy mm. is Owen Bennett, uh, you know, a, a Tucker Tynan. I'm not I'm not sure, but the Guelph Storm are in the mix. It'll be interesting to see if George Burnett decides to dip his toe into the trading pool this year. He's been known to. He has, he's he has he, to, not in shy. his 30 years of experience. He's not been known shy. To. Yeah. But uh, I honestly like, uh, is it o- Oster? Oster? Yep. Um, I like him better than Bennett, if I'm being honest, but for George knows way more about hockey than I'll ever know. He's forgot more about hockey than I know. So I'm going to trust him and Owen Bennett's been putting up some good numbers and they keep, they just keep slugging away, keep winning. And they're one of those teams. We mentioned it all the time, Farsi, that it, not a lot of people had pegged to be a top team by any means. Yeah, that people in the were looking Conference. two years down the road. Like the yeah. next two years would be good years for Guelph. And all of a sudden, they're peaking a little early here. But is that not George Burnett? Like his whole career, like he he always gets the best out of teams. 
I find anyway, is players may not like him because he's a little old school. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, his mean demeanor, but he's been nothing but kind to me. And I just think he's such a good hockey mind. He knows this league through and through. He's been around. He's seen it all. He knows nothing frazzles him. He walks around with this kind of like, I want to say like a tired look, like you're like, Are you okay, George? But that he, nothing is going to shock him anymore. He has seen it all. He has done it all in hockey. So I, I just think, you know, you look at the golf storm and you're like, yeah, sounds about right. You know, they're buying into Georgia's systems and here we are, you know, home ice advantage right now in the standings. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's pretty impressive for him to be relevant and still this successful after all these years because the game and, and the players that play it change so dramatically and George is just evolving right along with it. It's It's pretty impressive stuff. So you started this podcast today Popper with an apology for still having your mustache. I mm-hmm. also wanted to issue one as we get into what I think is the the biggest story to come out of the last week in the Ontario Hockey League. I'll start though here to Chris Ferreira. I'm sorry. I feel I do feel bad for being as hard on you personally Chris Ferreira as I was. Do I think you did a pretty poor job in officiating that Rangers attack game? Last Friday night? Yes. Yes, I do. But I'm sure you didn't come to the rink wanting to do a bad job, trying to do a bad job. I hope you'll do a better job next time, but might have been a might have been a little sharp with the criticism there. I feel some remorse for that. And I just I'll just start right there with so many other layers to this story. I'll agree with you. I feel like I probably also owe him an apology, and which I will give on air as well. I'm not just, just giving it on the podcast, but I'll give it on the air um, on our next broadcast because we were hard on him. And did we go over the top? Probably looking back at it. Um, did he do a poor job in my mind and in your mind? Yes. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to debate it. I, I'm not going to go back on that. He did a poor job that night, but I still feel that we, I don't know if he is really and referees in general is really what we should be targeting or, or commenting on to the level that we did. But watching that game, when we're live in person, all the emotion in that game, in the building, it probably got the better of us. But he was the story of that game. And that is where I try not to be difficult on refs. But when you become the story of the game, that to me is when you're doing a bad job. When referees and linesmen do a good job, no one talks about them. And there are referees and linesmen in this league where I don't know their name or number. I don't know if I've seen them this year because they just do a good job and I don't have to look at them. It seems like game in and game out when we see 14 on the ice, we end up talking about them. And that's where kind of the frustration comes in. Everyone's allowed to have a bad night. Players have a bad night. We have bad nights. When it's a routine thing, that's where the frustration comes in as a broadcaster because we just want to watch and call a good hockey game. But when we can't get any flow to the game and when it just starts going haywire in our minds because of what someone is doing as a referee, that's where it becomes frustrating. But yeah, I, I think we were probably a little too hard on him. Did he do a poor job? Yes. But I go back to, you know, there's a lot of talk in the NHL right now about officiating. And Rachel Dory tweeted, uh, the NHL sending out a memo saying, don't criticize the officials is such nonsense when you consider the officiating display. And then this is the part that got me. You don't want to be criticized. Do a better job. Well, it's 
I agree with that wholeheartedly, Chris. And I was going to add to the end of what you were just saying. When I do a bad job on a broadcast, I am fully open to hearing from you about it. And in fact, I have heard about it over the years because the job that we do is a very public job. We are putting ourselves very much out there, for lack of a better term. And putting yourself out there in a role like this opens the door to criticism. I accept it. I hear it. Trust me. I I hear the good stuff too, and I appreciate it. But listen, when we don't do a good job, we hear about it. And that is fair game. Don't make it personal. That's fine. But you want to criticize how we do what we do when we're having an off night? You want to tell us we're doing a great job when we're doing a great job? Fine. It's all fair game from where I'm sitting. I'm right with you. I'll take it on the chin. I started off the podcast. I am the biggest proponent that we all make mistakes. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to be wrong. It doesn't mean that you didn't do your job correctly or you're a lesser person or anything if you lost or if you're wrong or whatever. But I understand that looking back, I was probably too hard on him during the broadcast. So for that, I apologize. Do I still think that he did a poor job? Yes. So let's get to the the main event. I mean, the Kitchener Rangers won a game four to three, I think was the final score on Friday night versus Owen Sound. But I say I think it was because really the story was eight and 28. Number eight for the Kitchener Rangers, Arbor Jacki. Number 28 for the Owen Sound attack, Captain Mark Woolley. It was a situation that had been brewing for weeks. The last time the teams met, Mark Woolley laid a pretty good whooping on a guy, while large in stature for the Kitchener Rangers, not a fighter at all, not his style of game, but Mark Woolley laid a whooping on Roman Schmidt. And word around the rink was that was a bit of a message because Arbor Jacki was suspended when that happened. And Woolley was saying, I'm, I'm a tough guy in this league. I, I know you think you're tough, Mr. Guy who's suspended, but when you're back, we're going we're gonna to have a little go. And boy, oh boy, did Jacki and Woolley go skating out to center ice. I'll, I'll say just quickly here, I think the linesman had a couple of opportunities. We were hard on Chris Ferrer. They had a couple of opportunities to step in before it even started. They didn't. Fine, because everybody knew this was going to happen. But oh my goodness, did it happen. And it it took my breath away at the end, Chris. You could probably hear it on our call of the broadcast because Mark Woolley was knocked out cold by the punch that ended the fight when Jack I caught him flush on the face. I, I don't like to see it. I'm okay with the fight the way that it happened because these were two willing combatants. Again, it was building for weeks. Both guys knew they were going to go that night. I'm okay with all of that. I don't like seeing what I saw. I was very happy to see Mark Woolley later in the game, running up the stairs at the auditorium to press row, looking right as rain. Completely agree. Um, our, I have my coffee mug here. Our friends at Rogers TV. There's oh, the well Rogers sound. That's Thank you. Smart. The Rogers yeah. sound effect. Yep. Uh, our friends at Rogers TV caught video of Arbor doing up his fight strap beforehand. So you knew it was coming. Everyone. I shouldn't say everyone. The majority of people around the teams knew it was happening. We had heard gossip or rumors that, yeah, London was sending a message to Arbor Jack I during that game where he was suspended that oh, you're up there. Was. Or sorry. Yes. Sorry. One oh, sound. You're up there. We're running stuff down here. And they wanted a piece of him. Well, when we found out and heard these rumors around the rink, I told you, I respect that. I do. But sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for. And you shouldn't wish for Arbor Jack guy because 
what he did to Mark Woolley is what he's done in every fight in this league, essentially. He's never lost a fight, I don't think. And there are people who every time fighting comes up, there are going to be those people, those Twitter warriors and pull out their Twitter fingers and start commenting. Oh, fighting has no place in this league. Well, guess what? It's in the league and it does have a place because if Arbor Jack guys on the ice on that Friday night in Kitchener with Owen sound in town, that doesn't happen. That's why fighting belongs in this league, because if it's not, you have guys running around trying to hurt people acting like idiots. I personally, in watching that game, did not think London, or sorry, I keep saying London, Owen Sound did anything wrong. Were they physical? Were they extra physical? Yes. But that's hockey. You mean the game that Jack I wasn't there? Yes. See, I, I really, disagree. I, I think fair. there was there was intent to to establish something against a, a team that was missing its its real sandpaper and to target players that don't play that kind of game. And I don't like that sort of stuff. Fair, but there, I get the fighting Roman Schmidt. And I, and I think that's what you're alluding to. We're targeting guys who don't play that type of game. Roman fought as a member of the Tampa Bay Lightning in exhibition play. So it's not like he's never been in a hockey fight. Sure. I completely get if Mark Woolley's going to line up in center and chase around Francesco Pinelli. That's a little offside. But the aggression that fans were calling disgusting and how they should be embarrassed by themselves by the after the whistle stuff and just invoking their nastiness on Kitchener, which didn't have any nastiness with Arbor out of the lineup, I have no problem with. Because if you're built that way, if you're built as a team that's going to get in people's faces, you have to play that way. And it shouldn't matter if the other guy has a tough guy or not. But if that Farber's in the lineup, they can't inflict that tough style of play that they want. They can't take liberties. So that's where the fighting belongs in this game. See, and this is where I actually begin to have a problem with it. Because here we are talking about the aftermath. And we've basically... You know, by talking and, and pumping his his tires physically so much that Arbor Jack guy is the the be all and end all of OHL tough guys right now. I'm 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 a little bit uncomfortable with that. I'm not going to lie to you, especially because these are still junior hockey players. And the other piece then that gets to me in this is we're essentially going back to the same arguments that Don Cherry was making in the 1970s and 80s that you need to have your guy to protect your better players from the rats on the other team, or as coach uh, Dave McQueen called them on our podcast a while back uh, poop birds. He didn't use the word poop, but anyway, <laughs> little, little poop birds out <laughs> little there. Poop bird. He was a poop bird. I don't, I don't like the idea of needing to have guys who basically patrol the ice to protect your star players or your players that don't get involved in that sort of play. If a fight is going to happen in the game of hockey in the course of play, because the emotion of the moment and the aggression of the play, whatever, and two guys are like, gloves go down and here we go. That's the stuff I'm still all for. But the kind of thing we're talking about right now, as we said, this was premeditated. You, you mentioned it on the broadcast during the, the showcase of penalties that were happening. Arbor Jack guy and Mark Woolley stood side by each at the referee circle by the timekeeper's bench. And you said, hey, Farsi, what do you think they're talking about? And it wasn't five minutes maybe 10 of real time before they dropped the gloves and went. I'm, I'm not super comfortable with that. I'm sorry. And that, and that's fair. And we've talked about fighting at length on this podcast, but if anybody's a new listener, thanks Robbie shrimp last week, drawn in some new listeners. Um, I've come a long way on fighting. I always loved it as a player. 
but now looking at the game and how it's changed, I've come around. I don't want any of the staged fighting. This one is an exemption, though, Farzi, and here's why. Because Arbor Jackeye, true or false, 95% of this of this season thus far, he has been the Rangers' best player on the ice. Yes. Yes. So he he has what it takes outside of the physical game to play in this league and to play at the next level, quite frankly. Mark Woolley is a fantastic defenseman who 19 other teams would be lining up to have on their team if he's ever on the trade wire. So they can play, but they also have that toughness to them and they like to fight and they will fight. So this was, in my mind, when I look at the OHL, this was 1A versus 1B when it comes to tough guys. And when you are a tough guy and when you want to play that physical game, you know someone's going to answer you from time to time. This was two guys saying, you're not going to do that to my team. I'm going to do that to you. So as premeditated as it was, it was a rivalry, but it was also two guys saying, listen, I'm the one who's going to control stuff. And they had to do it. Like if they don't do that, this thing boils over into all 12, 10 games against Owen Sound this year. So to get it done, I'd have no problem with the fact that we all knew it was going to happen because it needed to happen. It was the two toughest guys in the league going toe to toe to decide who's the toughest guy quite frankly. So I, I really had no problem with it. I like you, as soon as Mark Woolley got KO'd and his head hit the ice or looked like it hit the ice, I had to turn away because I was like, this is, that's not, I don't want to see that. That's nasty. I hope he's okay. First thing I'm like, Oh my gosh, I hope he's okay. I hope he's okay. I hope he's okay. To see him walking up. It was just extreme relief seeing him on his own two feet and walking up. So all the best to Mark Woolley for sure. And I talked about it on the broadcast, the stuff he does with Woolley's warriors for diabetes. He's one of the few players in this league that realizes he has a opportunity as a player in the OHL to have a platform and he's using it for good. He's a good kid. He got the, he got the wrong end of the punch. It happens. It's a, it's a fighter's punch. They could fight three more times and it might be two KOs for Arbor. But in that instant, it was just, it was a game that had boiled over because of mismanagement to begin with. And everyone knew they were going to go eventually. I thought it would have been first shift just to get it out of the way to be honest, but to see it go down, I was like, this needs to happen. It, it needs to. And both guys were, yes, they're OHL players. They're young men, but they're 20 year old adults. It wasn't like a 20 year old going after a 16 year old, chasing them around the ice. That's the stuff we don't need in the game. When two 20 year olds go to center ice who have fighting backgrounds and they say, listen, let's go decide who's the tough guy here. No problem with it. Yeah. So I'll just finish on this point. I think those comments, those words are setting up 18 other teams in this league to say, you know what? I'm tougher than Mark Woolley or Arbor Jack. And I just, I just don't like that idea even being out there. And I would further say that if the previous game had been managed differently and perhaps there was some supplementary discipline doled out for, you know, going after a guy or targeting a guy on the other team that didn't want to have any part of your shenanigans, maybe then, there wasn't a buildup that something had to happen in this stage stuff going around to center ice. But listen, the, the, the uh, hockey lover in me and, and the fan of physical play certainly enjoyed the spectacle on Friday night. I cannot tell a lie about that. So from supplemental, oh, it, was it, was a, it was, it was very strong bombs. They, they really did. Like they were trading punches until, like you said, Arbor Jack, I landed the one that knocked the other guy cold. So let's take this idea, though, of supplementary discipline a step further, because I here's something else. I 
and I almost hate to say I have trouble with this, but I, I really do. Andrew Parrott, in the second period of that game, after all this had happened in the first, it was later in the first. Anyway, Andrew Parrott earned himself second, a game misconduct. Thank you. Earned himself a game misconduct for saying to Arbor Jackeye, remember, Arbor Jackeye already knocked Andrew Parrott's captain cold. Woolies out of the game. Andrew Parrott skates by or near to Arbor Jackeye and says, I'm going to blink and kill you. And he gets a game misconduct. The word we got up on press row is uttering a threat. I, maybe I need to read my rule book more closely. I didn't know, Chris, that that was a penalty. I know we, we worked on, you know, and, and rightly so, language that's used around racial slurs, homophobic slurs, etc. I didn't know that the, the threat piece was part of it. We learn later that it's, I'm going to blink and kill you, game misconduct. But then what really caught my attention is two-game suspension for Andrew Parrott. Now, I'm going to encourage you to listen very closely to our guest who is coming up on this podcast, because in the first 10 to 15 minutes of the podcast, without even thinking about it, he drops the reference to wanting to kill the other team. Okay. When I think about this big picture, I can understand how it's pretty problematic to say, to, to be so cavalier about our use of the words, I'm going to kill you. But ask yourself honestly in your life, how many times you've said that to a buddy, to a coworker when they do, oh, if you do that again, I'll kill you. Right. Again, is it problematic that we are so cavalier about that? Maybe, but when there is absolutely positively no true prospect of me killing you, if I'm just, you know, we're into it, we're having some fun, we're kibitzing, oh, Pope, I'm going to kill you. There's absolutely no prospect of that happening. That's it. Andrew Parrott cannot, even if he wanted to, well, I guess I, I guess he technically could, but he's not going to kill Arbor Jackeye. And yet the league deems that suspension worthy. I think we've come to a really interesting part in this life. What's he, what's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to skate past Arbor Jackeye and say, a little bit later on, I would like to have a fight with you. Like, come on. I, I do not like this precedent there. Yeah. You're opening a can of worms here. I know I am. I know I am. Back when, like back when I played Farsi, I say, and I said it to, shrimp and i've maybe mentioned it to lock too and now with evan mcgrath i've said back an hour day and i say that because that's when i was playing a much lower level of junior hockey but that's when i was playing real competitive hockey i can tell you right now i don't know if i can name five people i played against that is because i didn't want to know them i didn't care to know them it was me or them it became that mindset of we're going out there and we're going to play a hockey game. And one of us is going to win. You're in my way of winning. You're in my way of a job. It was, we need to kill them tonight. And it wasn't um, like the actual killing. It was, we need to go and beat this hockey team. It's a game of hockey at the end of the day. So we all, as you mentioned with society, have we become more cavalier with it? That's up for debate, obviously. But if I look at it as if you can't tell someone on the ice, like who, who you, who just knocked out your captain. I'm going to kill you because I want to fight you like that. How soft are we getting with this league? How soft are we getting with the game? 
Like I completely understand why people don't want to see it. I get it, but it is part of the game. Enough with the argument of, oh, does it belong in hockey? Does it not? It's part of hockey. It's in the game. We've limited it. It's very few and far between. Do you see two? That's that's why I say Friday night was an anomaly because you don't see two legit pound for pound heavyweights, one versus two, battling it out at center ice. You don't see that again. We won't see it for another five years, I bet. Unless Wooly and Jack, I decide to do it again. But you don't see that. So for a player like Andrew Parrott, who's extremely proud, and you want to talk about the player, Andrew Parrott. Fantastic. He's really come into his own and own sound since coming over from London. But let's talk about the person. During COVID, he's not playing. His people in the league aren't playing. He organized a tournament himself down in the States, did all this work to allow people who may be better than him to beat him out for a draft spot at the next level to come and showcase their talent. This is a kid doing good work. He's a good person. He's in the heat of the moment. He tells someone who just knocked out his captain, buddy, you know, I'll kill you two games. I understand why, but eventually there has to be a line. Like, I don't know what the line is. I really don't. And maybe I shouldn't speak on it because I don't know what the line is, but I feel like in a game, like we hear players talk about all the time, Farzi. Oh, we were going to battle. Oh, it was a war out there. No, it wasn't. A war was a world war, like where your life is actually on the line. And a battle is an actual battle. But you use those terminologies. When you tell someone, buddy, I'll kill you. It doesn't mean I'm actually going to end your life. It means I'm going to beat you up. So I know I have a long way to go and a long way to, to learn. And I'm learning year and year and I'm coming a little closer to that middle but I feel like if you can't tell someone on the ice who you want to fight that I'm going to kill you, like two games for that, what are you going to say? I would really like to punch your nose in. I hope that's okay. I honestly feel it was, I bet you, I bet you if you survey the referees in the league, a hundred percent of them, I've heard that on the ice and not gave a guy a game misconduct followed up by a two game suspension. Yeah, it's the suspension that gets me the most in this because that means sober second thought. It's like the Canadian Senate, right? You've had a time, a chance to review all of this and you're going to render your decision away from the emotion of the moment. And I don't even want to use the emotion of the moment as an excuse because, again, if you really do break it down, I completely understand how problematic the words are. (laughs) I'm going to kill you, man. For sure. I get that. Like if I passed a stranger on the street and we accidentally bumped into one another or whatever, like I, I totally get that. So where I'm landing on this and you, you used the word soft a moment ago, Chris, and I, I will too. Like I, I cannot believe we are growing this soft as people because here's, here's the way I'm going to position it. And, and I'm kind of making this up on the spot, but I, I think this is a fair way to position it. Cause I can, I can hear the blowback now. I can hear people criticizing us oh, for this podcast and for this. Right. But here's what I'm going to say is if reasonable people hearing those words, reasonable people can understand that there is actually no real intent or prospect of killing the other person, then we can just move on with our lives and not be so damn sensitive. Andrew Parrott was not going to kill Arbor Jacka. He just wasn't. I'm not going to kill you. I don't know if I've ever said it to you, but I probably have because in joking, in the way we talk, that comes out. I'm never going to. So I think if reasonable people can put that connection together, that there's no 
reasonable prospect of somebody's life being ended, then get over your damn selves. That's too much for me to take. As much as I'm still uncomfortable with the big staged center ice fight on Friday, and I've talked about that, I'm as uncomfortable with this. A two-game suspension for saying you're going to kill some guy? Yeah. When there's no prospect of you actually killing him? Come on, folks. Come on. When he he got the gate, I said to you, I think we went to commercial right after, but I said to you, what's a guy have to say to get ejected? Like, because he was nowhere. He was six feet away from him. Like, what's he have to say to get ejected? And first thing that came to mind was a homophobic slur. You drop a homophobic slur on the ice or a racial slur, you deserve to get suspended. 100%. No place in the game. Done. Over. Bye. I, I won't even mention it on the podcast. But anyone who's been in any fight has probably said, I'll kill you. And it wasn't meant like I'm going to end your life. It was like, I'm going to win the fight. That's all he meant by that was I'm going to stick up for my captain who you just knocked out at center ice and I'm going to fight you and I'm going to win. And then I'm going to do a celebration. That's all Andrew Parrott meant by it to get. And I know it's only two games, but to get any kind of suspension, I think it's just where it's a slippery slope before it just becomes tight hockey no body right. contact what are you doing going through the motions and and maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong as as i said i'm probably going to get toasted for it but it is it is what it is i don't think that's a two-game suspension and i i asked the referees i guarantee you every one of them has heard that on the ice at some point or worse and i i feel bad for andrew parrott because he was just trying to stick up for his captain and his teammate and that's all you want as another teammate if i go out there and someone does something to me i want my teammates to stick up for me like Andrew Parrott can play for my team any day after seeing that. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I'm astounded that this is the level that we have reached. This is the level of softness and or sensitivity that we have reached. Again, we got to get to our guest. So I'll encourage you. I know, you. Just, real, just real quick. We may be completely out to lunch in this far as No, we're and, not, Pope. No, no we're I'm not. just saying, Own no, I'm it. saying, I'm saying, yes, of course. No, I'm owning it. But I'm saying we may be completely out to lunch in this where the league might have sent a, a memo in the off season saying, hey, this is no longer allowed. Doesn't you matter. Can no longer ma- make it. Resend the memo. It's <laughs> stupid. I'm sorry. I'm no state. No, I'm with you. No, I'm right with you. I'm just. I but but if if that happened, we don't know about it. So I just want that to be known. So if someone is going to tweet me and say the league sent out a memo saying they can't say that you'll kill someone, okay, well then I apologize. Then yeah, and then my I'm gonna, my, I'm my remind misdirected you. anger should be at the league. <laughs> resend the memo. It's a yeah. dumb memo. So again, just. Pay attention. Notice, I, I hate to f- sound like the teacher at the front of the class. Now you pay attention, but our guest in the first 10 to 15 minutes of this podcast with, cause we had recorded with our guest before this. So he didn't know we were about to talk about this. He drops it twice. Oh, we wanted to kill him or along those lines. And he doesn't even think twice about it. And nor should you have to in that context. I'll throw it over to Pope to move on, but I, I'm not going to let this one go anytime soon. It's, it's a pretty bad precedent. I feel like it's the perfect time to just remind people at Farwell underscore OHL <laughs> and at underscore Chris Pope. Please let us know that you <laughs> that you completely disagree with us now or that you agree because that would be nice to hear too so we don't feel like a man on an island. Um, okay, so our guest this week um, around these parts really needs no introduction, but right. for the casual fan, I will introduce him. A first rounder to the Ontario Hockey League, to the Kitchener Rangers. In his rookie season, he became an OHL champion and a Memorial Cup champion. He then got drafted by the Detroit Red Wings <laughs> in the fourth round. Stick around was, for the Steve Eiserman story, too. Oh, it's a good one. It's highlight of my career so far. Um, 
drafted by the Detroit Red Wings in the fourth round in 04. Tough team to make. Played in the American League for 270-plus games and then added another 430 pro games overseas. Great guy. Appreciate his time. Uh, I don't want to call him a Ranger legend, but he was one of the most skilled players that we've had in recent time here in Kitchener. Uh, Here is our interview with Evan McGrath. I think this was kind of accidental but it works out pretty well this is almost like the answer podcast to last week's sit down with rob shrimp because evan mcgrath you you played against shrimpy even before you came into the ontario hockey league where he was an arch rival with the london knights yeah you know what shrimpy and i have gone way back we uh we played against each other like i was telling you when uh, i was in tier two my our both of our draft years um and we played against each other in a tournament out out east um, and Robbie, I've never, I have never seen him. I'd never really seen him play or anything like that. And I got to watch him and the skill that he possessed was just outrageous, outrageous skill. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a rivalry that's gone back a long, long time, but, uh, we, we still talk to this day and, and still get along. So, uh, a pretty cool friendship to keep. So no hard feelings there. <laughs> No, hey, I got the Memorial Cup when we needed to, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, I got mine. It would have been nice to have two, don't get me wrong. But uh, we, uh, we were lucky enough to have a good team that year, yeah. There's the salt in the wound for Robbie in case he's watching this episode. I, I, no, you know what? They had some great guys on that team. Even the Hunts, uh, Bowl, and all these guys I still keep in touch with quite a bit. So it, it's pretty cool to, to see where our friendships have grown from playing against each other at 16, 17, 18, and uh, for the most part, just trying to destroy each other. Um, we had quite rivalry with the, that team, so it, it was a lot of fun. But again, we look all, we all look back on it now and, and think of it all very, very fondly. Uh, if I can just follow up real sure. quick. I'm just curious, because Evan, when you were born six days before me, so we're the same age, but at that time of playing junior hockey, there wasn't as much friendship as there is now because Twitter wasn't around and you weren't playing in as many tournaments together. You talked about it back in those days. It was, I'm going to kill the other person on the opposite side to win this hockey game. Yeah. For for a lot of those guys, how did you become friends with them when you're trying to go out every game and you you know what? I, I think it was more when our careers kind of changed when we were in the OHL, we, all of us were, we were acquaintances, I guess you could say like the odd time Kitchener guys would go out to London, hang out down there. London guys would come out to Kitchener. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like the cell phone where um, nowadays you can't really do much without it being talked about or, or being talked about from other people. So um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. There was a lot of competition, right? It, it was, it was competition, competition, competition. You wanted to win. You wanted, that's all it was about. Um, There wasn't any aftermath. There wasn't anything like that. It was all left on the ice pretty much. And, and the game is straight a little bit from that, but that's just the way the world's developing. And um, I think you got to go with things and and build the way things are are turning to. So that was the game now and the game has changed, but uh, I think for the better, for sure. Popey, with your birth dates so close, you don't want to compare junior hockey careers because I, I'd, I'd sit and listen to that. Uh, it wouldn't be a very long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wondered about the rivalries, Evan, because obviously London was a big one, but I, I seem to recall back in the day, particularly that that road to the first Memorial Cup that 
the Rangers one, you and the Rangers one, uh, was Plymouth was a was a big roadblock too. Yeah, well, Plymouth was a quiet powerhouse. They they were always uh, very strong, very hard to play against. Um, I think the rivalry with Pete and Spotter coming over as well from Plymouth obviously amplified that. Then all of a sudden there was a a big trade between with us getting Gregory Campbell. Um, so yeah, there, there was a lot of hostility. Um, those were big games for Pete and Spotter. They really wanted to win, uh, even regular season. So when it got to the playoffs and, and, and that, that series against Plymouth, I think people now still talk about, um, so it it was definitely a, a, a huge rivalry. I think it's, it, it grew away a little bit as, as my career kind of in Kitchener went on, but, um, definitely one that was still pretty strong. If I can jump in with the follow-up there real quick, Chris, because you mentioned that series, you had to you had to beat Plymouth in the West final. And and to this day, Evan, people that I talk to say, you know, you're down 3-2, you have to go back to Michigan to win game six and then come home to win game seven. But people that I talk to to this day say, once you guys won game six, they knew it was over. What was the feeling for the team? It, it was huge. I, I think we all it was almost like a huge weight off everybody's back. Um, Cause it, it was tough. Like we, we were, we were expected to do very well. We wanted to do very well. Um, but yeah, Plymouth gave us, <laughs> it was a battle. Like there was goals that are still controversial. There, there was fights, there was uh, competition. It was battles. It was, it was great. Um but yeah, going into game seven, I, I think we had a lot more confidence and again, a little bit of weight off our back where um, kind of gave us that belief, right? Sometimes you need that little kick to to kind of prove to everybody or prove to yourselves uh, just how good the team was. And um, from that team, we have Scott Dickey, who who was a great goalie. We have guys like George Halkidis, um, guys like that that didn't really even Smitty guys like that that didn't get as much recognition but what a what a great group to have to to push through the types of games like that we asked spotter this question and i'm going to ask you no after point. you after you win game 6 what is that bus ride like back it was good it was a lot better <laughs> than the bus it. ride there <laughs> it was a lot better than the bus ride there uh, I, I don't think there was much talking on the bus ride there, to be quite honest with you. It was a quiet, um, I, it was, everybody knew, right. It was, it was, we were going in there to, for war. It was do or die. Um, that's how that game was. And it, it was exciting. It was powerful on the way home. It was just excitement. Right. I, I think it, like I said, it, it gave us a lot of belief. Um, and I think, that game was the turning point to us continuing our success. Cause we went into Ottawa and uh, with such a great team that they were, we, we handled them quite easily in my opinion. And, and I think it was because we had that competition in, in those last couple games and those last couple series where, and again, that belief came in where it just kind of took us to, to ride that wave kind of through the end. Was there a big speech before game six or game seven in that series that you remember? Oh, now, now I've been hit in the head too many times. I can't remember <laughs> things like that. <laughs> now, now we're going too deep. Um, but no, Pete was always, um, he was always pretty vocal. So I don't think that was ever, guys always listened and got up when Pete came into the dressing room. But again, we had a team and, and that year it was funny. We, we did this. Uh, it was a speech from like, oh, what's this? Is it any given Sunday or, or when one inch? 
that's the one the game inch of speech. inches. Yeah. yeah and and you know what? We played that speech before every game. Um, and it was, it, it sounds kind of crazy, but at the time it wasn't as big of a speech as it is kind of known now. Um, but like, it, it was kind of an emotional speech for our team and everybody kind of took it in. Um, and it kind of was our, our push and our, our little motivation kind of before every game. And it, it really, it was a crazy thing. It really got uh, a lot of the guys' emotions really going. Their names have come up a couple of times. Obviously, uh, Pete DeBoer, Steve Spotter, synonymous with the most recent success for the Kitchener Rangers. Uh, I joke to this day, Evan, and it's still only half a joke, that Pete DeBoer still intimidates me. What was he like to play for? <laughs> um. Pete was difficult, right? He, he, he expected a lot. Um, he, he just tried to get the most out of a lot of players and, and um, off the ice. If, if you knew Pete, he's, he's got a good heart. He's a good person. Um, he, he just, he's, he's intense. He gets into the game uh, and he expects a lot. And it, it, again, emotions take over. Right. And, and um, but no, he, he was a great coach. He's obviously a great coach. Look at his career now. Um impressive and, and again a guy I still speak with um on text and, and quite regularly so um a big influence in, in all the lives I'm sure that he coached um but definitely definitely a big influence and in, in a, a passionate coach that's for sure how scared were you of him though oh there were times I was quite quite <laughs> quite scared <laughs> there were a couple times as like a 16 year old 17 year old and um but you know what, that, that, that was his way of sometimes getting people motivated mm-hmm. and, and with some people it worked, some people it didn't, it was just, Pete was Pete and, and it didn't really matter who you were. That's just how he was going to treat the whole team. He expected it. It's almost, he was a little bit ahead of his time. Um, in my opinion, he, he, he expected, he expected 100% all the time. And then when in a game where back then it was maybe a little bit different. Um, but now like you need to be on your game all the time, every shift. And if you're not, it's, it's not acceptable. Um, so I think Pete was a little bit ahead of his time in, in the regards to, um, pushing the players to, to kind of appreciate it and respect each other kind of to, to battle and, and to, to work outside of the game as well. We spent about 10 minutes talking about, and obviously it's a big piece winning that Memorial cup, the, the battles in the playoffs to get there, but that's kind of fast forwarding the start to your OHL career because all of this happens Evan, in your rookie year and you come into the Kitchener Rangers organization as a first rounder. What kind of pressure did you feel? And, and what was that year like knowing that the expectation was Quebec and that Memorial cup? Yeah. Well, you know what? There, there's a lot of expectations on first rounders going into to seasons, uh, second rounders even nowadays, but um we knew we had a really solid team that year. Um, we had Mike Richards, we had Dave Clarkson, uh, Derek Roy, who was one of the best players I've ever been getting, got to play with. So again, Steve Eminger came back. We, we had such a good solid crew that um, I didn't have that much pressure on me. I, I put more pressure almost on myself and, and my family that we put more pressure on myself than, than I was getting around the rink. Um, because I was kind of hidden by the Derek Roy's, the, the Mike Richards, um, who Mike Richards was going into a draft year. So, so there was a lot of attention on players like that, which um, 
I think was beneficial because it's tough going in at a 15, 16 year old, all new surroundings, all new lifestyle, new family to live with. So um, I'm a strong believer in that first year should just be a growing year for these kids. And, and uh, I was lucky enough to have the experience of going to the Memorial Cup, of um, winning an OHL championship, winning a Memorial Cup and, and playing with some great players and learning from some great players. Were you able in that rookie season, Evan, to take in the Memorial Cup experience and that playoff run and realize what you were experiencing, not thinking, oh, this is an easy, easy league here. No, and that's the unfortunate part. And and to be quite honest with you, Chris, I probably didn't even realize it until maybe my last couple years of pro. Um, When you start getting to the end, you start realizing how much more winning matters. Um, because it's, it's special when you have a good group of people. It's special when uh, you're part of something like that. Um, unfortunately, as a 16-year-old, I, th- I thought I was going to go in every year, right, and, and win a Memorial Cup like, yeah, after easy. that. So <laughs> it was like, wow, this is going to be an amazing, right? But um, no, you know what? We're, it, it was a great year. It was a tough year. Um, it was a growing year. It was a lot of fun. I, I wish I would have done it again and, and been older. But at the same time, it, it's memories I have now with these guys that will last a lifetime and, and uh, something I, I look back on very fondly. When you look back on it, to what do you credit your development and growth in the game? Because you look just strictly at points and you see the trajectory. You're going just that way. The wings find you in the fourth round, et cetera. What helped you grow in the game? I, I had a lot of good people around me. Um, my, my dad was very tough on me when it came to the sport, um, which only pushed me. Uh, it was all positive in a positive way. Um, great coaches around me in, in Kitchener. Uh, I, I had some amazing billets. Um, Greg Cusimano, who I still speak to every couple weeks. Um, so he, he was very close. Again, some great training off season. Um, I was lucky enough at that time, there weren't so many gyms. So um, I would work out in Toronto with guys like Rick Nash, Jason Spezza, Kyle Quincy, uh, again, Clarkie, Listen, just the, the list went on and on and on. It was such a fantastic group of players where <laughs> you had to expect uh, a tough competition every day. So I, I think it was more just surrounding myself with the right people. Um, again, I'm a strong believer in that. Um, no matter what business or whatever you're doing, I think you need to be surrounded by good, strong people to, uh, to make yourself stronger. So uh, again, I was lucky with all the people around me. I didn't have too many negative impacting people. It was, it was mostly positive. That team, we've talked about it. The names have come up, Richards, Roy, Clarkson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it seems like on that roster. Um, away from on ice, do you have any good uh, Richie or Derek Roy stories? Oh, there's a couple I know I can't tell. That's for sure. <laughs> Listen, well, I know you guys probably all get that, but definitely a couple we can't tell. But I'll, I'll let you think about it because I'll tell you this quick story. I messaged a former teammate of yours, said, do you have anything, any kind of story I can bring up with Evan? And he said, uh, oh, I, my brain doesn't work that well. And I'm like, come on, man. It wasn't that long ago. And then yeah. he's like, he, he was the big dog. I was the rookie. So I just shut up. <laughs> so, but he... We hear that all the time about nothing first or nothing that you can tell on air, but there's gotta be something. No, you know what? It was more like, I know my first, my first rookie initiation that I had to do, I had to shoe check Derek Roy. (laughs) So it was like my first 
two weeks or three weeks that I get onto this team and all the older guys come up to me and they're like, you have to shoot. I didn't even know what a shoe check was at that time. For our listeners, so, can you just quickly explain a shoe check? A shoe check is everybody's at uh, lunch or dinner and around the table and, and there's somebody's paying attention and somebody takes some sort of sauce like a ketchup or mustard or something and you, and you go quietly under the table and you put it on the person's shoe if it's butter or, or whatever it is everybody gets up you start tink, tinking your glass and then everybody looks at their shoes so my first one was Derek Roy and we're in Chatham and somebody told him that I was going to do it so Roysey had a pitcher of water on the top Dirty. of the table ready for me and right when he felt something or somebody told him he popped up and poured a whole pitcher of water right down my head so that was kind of my first Derek Roy story, but uh, no, those guys are just quality people, right? Like good, good people. Um, I you hope the best for them. I ran into Roisey about three, four years ago in, in Switzerland uh, playing against him. So again, some, some great people, uh, some great memories with these guys and, and hopefully we can all get together one day soon and then talk about them again. It must've been so intimidating as a rookie to be told you got to go shoot check Derek Roy. Again, it was like, are you kidding me, guys? Like, come on. Like, uh, <laughs> anyone else? Something else. Anyone, anyone else yeah. on the team? <laughs> yeah. Like, how about like one of the guys that aren't one of the top players that just came back from the NHL? Like, it, it was almost like going to do Eminger, too, right? Like, it's like, come on, guys, give me yeah. a little bit of give push me someone here. else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think the same thing happened with Paul McFarland, actually, too. I think he got caught doing it as well that year. All right, still with teammates and a story that we got from Rob Schremp's perspective last week. So I'm really interested in hearing it from your perspective. So we talked about the rivalries. London's obviously a big rivalry and became that bigger rivalry through your career. So you meet them in the West final in 2005. And at center ice, at the end of a game, there's Mike Richards, there's Corey Perry, and they skate out to center ice and the two star players are going at it. We heard Shrimp's version of that story. What's Evan McGrath's version of that story? Yeah, you know what? Richie's like a really quiet fighter. Um, you never knew when he was going to explode. Uh, he was a quiet, hardworking guy, but he wasn't a guy you wanted to fight. And, and for some reason, he didn't really like Corey Perry too much. And, and I think... <laughs> you don't know the I, reason. <laughs> I, I think it went back and forth, I think. I don't know. But uh, those two guys had such a battle within the game against each other that I don't think a lot of people knew other than the couple fights that they had. They were battling. Like, if you go through the tapes, those guys would battle shift to shift to shift that way. They'd be in the corners killing each other. Um, again, it's kudos to somebody like Corey Perry, who's still playing and, and doing the job that he's doing right now. It, it, it's incredible. Right. Um, but no, that fight, it was, there was a little bit of planning definitely to that. Um, I think Richie and, and Corey were looking for a big spark and, and it needed to happen, I think. And everybody was kind of waiting for it because I think earlier on in the season, they had a fight right behind one of the nets, um, that kind of got tripped. One of them got tripped up a little bit, but they were going pretty hard and everyone was like, Oh, they got to go again. They got to go again. And uh, yeah, that I just remember Richie kind of quietly. 
I, I could have swore he maybe even said something back to Pete. Um, but there was something where it was like, okay, it's time. Like I'm, I'm going to do this type thing. And everybody was kind of, if you see our bench, everybody kind of got up slowly knowing that something was coming. And then all of a sudden it was just two trains kind of running at each other. Right. So this is a perfect, that's a perfect way to put it because it was something that needed to happen. You all knew it was going to happen. We just had an incident Friday at the rink where everyone knew the fight was going to happen. It needed to happen. Yeah. And the way the world is, there's a lot of stuff on Twitter. Oh, that has no place in the game. All oh, these are young kids and all that. But take us inside the, the mindset of a player on that team and inside the dressing room. What did that fight at center ice with a guy like Mike Richards do to the team? Well, that's why you have leaders like that. Um, and that's what makes him the leader that he was on that team. Um, again, it was a little bit of a different game. 15, 20 years ago than it is now. Don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I did see what happened last week and, and uh, it happens, right? Unfortunately, it's part of the game. Um, emotions can get, can run high. And, and when you see another player like that fight for, I guess you could say your team and for you, it's contagious, right? Um, even when I train kids now, when you see kids pushing harder and training harder, it's contagious. It pulls the group. It gets everybody going in the right direction. Right. Um, and I think that's what Richie was good at. He was always good at pulling the team when we were down in some sort of way, he would pull the team and get us going again. Um, and again, in the right direction. Uh, so yeah, guys like that doing that, it only gives a spark. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's, it's, a massive part of the game and it's definitely not anymore, but it's part of it. It happens once in a while. Um, you hope nobody gets hurt too poorly, too badly. Um, but again, it, it, it's part of the emotions of the game and, and guys have emotions, right? It, it's, it, it happens when it's competitive that way. How much did you guys push each other in practice to be better, to be game ready? That's why we were so good that year. Um, we had the best practice team by far. Uh, we came in, they weren't crazy long. Pete wouldn't run us into the boards like crazy, but we would battle. It would be tough. We'd have our weekly bag skates that um, were not fun, but it, it was, it was the way it was. And, and everybody worked hard. Everybody came to battle every day. Guys like Mike Richards would be the first on last off. Uh, Roisey would be making plays every day, showing what he does every day instead of, it could have been very easy for him just to come and show up. Um, Steve Eminger came back and brought a load of experience from NHL camp after playing, I think, eight or nine games. So I, I think they had a bit of a pro mentality, um, which, again, pushed our, our practice tempo, pushed our pace, pushed our, our competition a lot. Over 700 games pro. Is Mike Richards the best leader you ever had in your team? Hmm. He, he's con, for a consistent leader. Yes. I I've been lucky enough to be on the ice and be on the ice with guys like Zetterberg and, and Lindstrom and, and Datsuk and Iserman. So I don't want to quite compare to Iserman because he's my, probably one of my favorite players growing up and everything as well. But um, Mike was special. He, he was special, right? He, he had a very quiet, calm presence about him. Um but he knew how to motivate us. 
he, he knew how, like I said, that fight, um, he knew how to score the goal when he needed to. He knew when to block a shot, which again, at that time wasn't as big as it is now, but mm-hmm. he would be down and blocking everything. Um, so yeah, I, I have to put him right up there for sure for, for my 13 year pro career and four year junior career. Um, looking back, like Roisey was a great captain as well. Right. Um, so I, I was very lucky to have both of them, I, I, to, to especially start my, my junior career like that. It's funny because I was going to ask next about being selected by the Detroit Red Wings, but we might have to pick Popey up off the floor here because he is the hugest Wings fan. And those names you just dropped. I mean, I, should I just get out of the way for a minute, Popey? Well, I just want to correct it. I'm sure there's bigger Wings fans than I am but I am just a massive Steve Eiserman fan. That is why I became a Red Wings fan. So yeah, I need to ask you, the best. I don't know. I say to Farzi all the time, Evan, I don't know what I'm going to do if we're in Saginaw or Flint or wherever, and he walks into scout. I don't know what I would do. Like, I really don't. So I'm asking you, what was it like the first time? <laughs> you know what? The, the first time I met Steve was at Steve. Mr. Eiserman was at, um, <laughs> No, it was at, uh, it was, we were at under a world junior, tr- uh, camp and it was in BC and they were having their national men's camp at the same time. So we went up to this buffet. It was a beautiful house out in BC in the mountaintop overlooking the lakes. And both teams are there kind of having a little end of the kind of camp party. And I'm sitting there at the buffet as a little 17, 18 year old putting food on my plate. And he comes up behind me. And he says, hey, I'd love for you to come sit with us. So I got to go sit with him at the table. It was absolutely incredible. I went into my first training camp and they knew I was a a huge, massive fan of his. Um, And so we had a red and white game and I got to play with him, which was probably a pretty special moment in my career, especially at that age, too. Um, so, yeah, I have a lot of really cool special memories with him. Even there was one time in Grand Rapids, he came into the dressing room scouting. Um, and then all of a sudden, Gordy Howe walks in behind him. And I sit there, and I'm like this in the dressing room, stretching, like blown away. And I said to myself, I cannot let this go without getting a picture. Of course. And at the time, that's not the normal thing. Like everybody didn't have cameras and taking photos and, and iPhone selfies. So, I'm sitting there. I said, Mr. Eiserman, is it okay if I have a picture? He says, sure. I hundred percent. So we went in front of my stall. We took a little picture and I said, Mr. Howell, is there any way I can get a picture with both of you? All the guys in the dressing room are looking at me. You can see about 20 eyes turning around corners all of a sudden watching me, watching me, watching me. All of a sudden we take the picture by the end of it. We had almost a team photo going and everybody was taking the photos, right? Like, how do you, how do you turn something like that down? Yeah, I'm done. Farzi, take over the rest of the That's podcast. That's unreal, though. I'm, I'm done. Yeah, it was. It's special, and to this day, it's really special. It's uh, again Incredible. things things you remember that these people do these little tiny things for you, but it's uh, it, it, you remember them forever. How tough was it for you to make the decision, Evan? That you know what, it's not really working out here in North America. I'm going to pursue professional hockey in Europe. That was probably the hardest decision I made in my career. Um, just because you're kind of giving up on that NHL dream. Um, not per se, it's changed again because there's a lot of great leagues. But um, it was tough because I was right 
in between talking with about two or three teams in the NHL about signing two-way deals, um, I was extremely, extremely close to signing with Boston. Um, pretty much everything but the contract was sent. They had waited on one older guy that year, and he kind of he waited, 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 and then took it because they wanted to give him that opportunity. Um, but no, it was it was terrible. It was it was scary. Um, it was unknown. It was, uh, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. It was across the world, um, different hockey, different language, uh, different culture. It was, it was very shocking, very shocking. It was, and it happened really quick, I think, which I was lucky about too, because it was beginning of September and I needed to find a place. And, and the Swedish team kept calling and I said, you know what, I need to play, um, and it was honestly, I look back on it and I played five years in Sweden after that. So it's a country my wife and I both loved living in. Um, probably the country we have the most fond memories of being overseas. Um, so, yeah, you look back at it and it, it was scary. It was extremely terrifying. Um, but again, it's, it's a life path, right? And it, I spent nine years in Europe, um, met some amazing people, still talk to a lot of people outside of hockey. Um, so again, it, it's more your life connections and those life memories, I guess, that, that go along with it, that are, that are fantastic to have now too. You mentioned all those years over there in, uh, Austria, Switzerland, Sweden, the one team that pops off the hockey DB to me is Frölunda because it seems like they're always getting players drafted out of Frölunda and they just always attract the biggest names like yourself at that time. What was, what was Frölunda like compared to others? Uh, Frölunda was fantastic. It was professional. Um, we had great fan support. The city was fantastic. They're probably the one, two top team in Sweden kind of idea. There's a couple top, top teams kind of battling for position, but they're always good. And when I first got there, there was a coach named Roger Runberg who just took over. Um, this guy, I don't know how he's still over there. It makes no sense to me. He must just enjoy it because this guy's a mind. He's a, he was ahead of the game when he was coaching. Um, and he's really the program they have there now it's professional. And, and, uh, these NHL teams don't mind leaving some of their prospects there these days, um, because they're developing and, and it's a great league. It's a great organization. They have great practice facility, great game facility, um, again, they just surround their players with whatever opportunity they can, they can offer. But yeah, for London is a, it's a special spot. Like I said, though, but Roger Runberg, watch, watch his name. I, I'm again, I'm shocked. He hasn't made it over yet, but he, he's an impressive coach. One of your teammates on one of the stops in Europe was a recent guest on this podcast as well, who also lit it up in the Ontario hockey league fellow by the name of Corey Locke, who's now part of the coaching staff with the Guelph Storm. What do you remember from playing with Locke? Well, Corey and I are, are really good friends now. Um, we, our wives are good friends. Our family, our families are quite close. Um, Corey was, a, again, another special talent. Um, unknown guy coming into his OHL, second year his OHL um, eligibility, but uh, he played with my brother a little bit that year in Ottawa. So the, the skill level that he had and, and I got to play with him in, in Austria as well, but the way he saw the game was incredible. He, he wasn't that fast. Um, he was skilled, but he wasn't the most skilled player. It, the, his mind was just incredible for the game. He, he saw plays. He saw plays before they happened. He, he, 
he was just a, a almost like a student of the game, I guess people would say. He, uh, he just a guy like if he, if you give him another inch and you give him a little bit more speed, he's probably got a fifteen year pro NHL career, right? So, um, again, another guy I speak to all the time, a, a friendship I hold really dear to myself and my family, and um, just an impressive career. And, and he's still got so many really good things coming for him. Um, I, I truly believe that at least. So I'm excited to see where he goes. What was it like while you were overseas in your last handful of years where you had to be your own general or your own agent? <laughs> well, uh, it was different. It was different. I, I, I did have an agent or two that helped me over there a little bit, but um, I figured after a while I could do it myself. <laughs> um, I, I've, <laughs> If, if you knew me a little, if you know me a little bit and people get to know me, I'm pretty outgoing. I, I'm, I'm pretty ambitious. I'm, I'm pretty uh, aggressive when it comes to uh, achieving what I want to achieve. And I, I'm not afraid to hear no. And I heard a lot of them from a lot of teams as, as being my own agent. But um, no, it, it was a great experience. And even now, I, I think it's helped me in, in where my career path has gone now, just dealing with people and, and uh, the professionalism outside of it and everything like that, too. Chris got to have his moment talking about the wings and Steve Iserman. I am a lifelong, long-suffering Maple Leafs fan. And I got to say, there's a guy that you probably know pretty well uh, that is one of my favorite Leafs of all time. Father-in-law. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've met him a few times. Poroshevsky. What are, uh, I mean, Christmas is coming. What's, what's family d- dinner time going to be like over the holidays with uh, Doug Gilmore at the table? Uh, you know what? He, uh, he's been a very easy person to, to get along with. He's, uh, again, if you know him, he, he's a very easy, easygoing man. Um, he's been nothing but kind to me since day one. My, I met my daughter from high school in grade nine and 10. So um, we've lived with him for a couple summers he was gracious enough to have us live there uh, just in between locations of where we were playing. So um, he's grown into a, not only just a mentor, but he's a good friend now too. So if, if I need things that are questions or, or anything that maybe I know he has better insight to, I, I still always use him as a source. And, and again, he's, he's the father-in-law now, right? It, it's, it, it, you take, it's always special knowing what type of career he had. Um, it's top 15 player, probably in points of all time. Um, the work ethic, the, the drive, the motivation, the, the, the drive that he had in his career, it it was just incredible. Right. So, um, I'm lucky enough to hear the stories. I'm lucky enough to, to share a beer with them. And, and, uh, it's just always been a good experience. Nothing bad to say. Can you say the name Carrie Fraser or high stick? (laughs) Without him blowing his top. It was funny. One, <laughs> It was funny. One time we were a long time ago. Not a long time ago. I'm aging myself. But I'd say about 10, 12 years ago now, we were sitting there watching that game together early in the morning, having a coffee. Um, and yeah, it, this is, shows my ignorance at the time. I didn't even know it was coming. And then it happened. And I was like, oh. I looked over just waiting for him. And all he does is he just got up and walked away and just walked over to the the kitchen area, <laughs> poured himself another coffee. I don't know. He probably put a couple Baileys in yeah. after that. I don't know. What was it like though watching that? I'm sorry to dominate that, Chris, but watching that game as, as a guy that played in a different era, right? Like you, yeah. you were coming along a good decade later, the game had changed. What's it like watching that with a guy that was in it? 
I guess it kind of put, you put yourself in their, their shoes, right? It's, um, we were all, we've all been there. We've all had a terrible, terrible call against us, but that one was just magnified by a number I can't even put on it. Right. So, um, I don't think he holds much of a grudge or anything like that. He knows it was part of the game. I think he knows it would have totally turned the whole series uh, potentially too. So again, you try to put yourself in their shoes and, and, and just try to go with it. I try not to talk about it a whole lot. So <laughs> we haven't had a ton of conversation about it, but um, again, something you just try to let somebody deal with on their own. Right. If anyone has ever questioned you, cause you mentioned, excuse me, about how ambitious you are and how driven you are. A young adolescent man in grade nine or 10 met a girl named Madison Gilmore and still decided to pursue it as a <laughs> hockey player. Oh, I didn't so know. The la- I, didn't know the la- I didn't know the last name yet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. And, and it was funny. It was probably like third or fourth time I met her. Somebody had said something to me and it, it didn't really matter. She was kind of always the, the eye I, or the, the girl I always saw with my eyes. So it, it was more just meeting him my first time when I was 16 and kind of showing up at my wife's sweet 16 party after her brunch. He was kind of just sitting at the house and I was like, oh, kind of <laughs> what, what just happened? Right. Like how, who is, like couldn't even talk. Right. So, um, and again, he made it easy. So I've been lucky that way. What is it that brought you back to the game to the point you are now? Because I know financial services are part of what you're doing, and now you're into training guys again in hockey. What what keeps you in this game? Well, what I did was the financial side of it is a lot about relationships and, and trust. Um, and I knew that that was going to take a couple years to build. Um, it's not a profession. You just come into and have a lot of success. Um, especially when you're living overseas and and you got to build all those relationships again. Um, So I said to myself, what could I do to to kind of bridge both careers? And I said, I can teach kids, right? Every player thinks they can teach kids. Don't get me wrong. Um, But I said, I can do it. And I I went and I met with about four or five different people, different skills instructors, and I kind of saw who was good at it. Um, And I kind of, now I've just, developed something where I'm getting a really, really good feedback on. Um, I'm getting sent players from five, six, seven different top agencies in in the sport um, from Newport sports to Cortex to Wasserman group. Um, I'm really lucky. And it's, it's been a blessing in disguise, I think, because it's, I've gotten so much, so many more relationships with it. Um, And not only that, like, you take a lot of pride in seeing these kids develop. Now Um, I was a guy that was really highly touted going into my NHL draft year Um, after winning Memorial cup being I think I was even at one point being told a top 10 pick potentially. Um, So I try to take what I was good at and I try to add everything that I know I wasn't good at. Um, And it's, it's, given me success. I think I've gotten a lot of trust in a lot of people and families and, and um, I believe in it. A lot of people do believe in it as well. And in and, and the actual tempo of the skate that what I'm actually doing, the drills I'm doing. Um, and again, it's been a lot of fun. Like I get to practice with 12, 14 OHL guys on the ice for three, four hours a day in the summer. And then I had an NHL group and then I get 
a young group that's all coming into the OHL. It's, 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 uh, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's rewarding if, if you, if you care about it, um, just because there, there's so many good players and they're, they're, they love the game so much these days and they're such students of the game. Um, again, I just try to offer what I know and what I didn't do. And um, again, just try to be a support system when they need it um, in constant contact with 40 plus OHL players right now, all the time by text message, if they need anything, if I see, maybe sometimes their numbers aren't quite where they are um, or where they hope they are. I try to shoot a text, try to be a little bit of support that way. Um, just on the whole, just try to be a good person and, and role model for these kids. Right. Seems to be working out well for you. So keep it going. <laughs> I, I hope, yeah, I hope so. Right. I, I hope it keeps continuing. I, I had a pretty cool opportunity this summer that unfortunately didn't work out with just my family situation. So my goal is to get to, to develop into the NHL and, and hopefully one day I get that opportunity where, um, where, where a team comes knocking and then believes in what I'm doing as well. If we can go back to the OHL days, was there a player in the league that you absolutely hated playing against? Oh, yeah. Or a couple? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Guelph Storm. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was always a tough game. I always hated playing against Guelph. Uh, they they always had a tough little team. Guys like Callahan would always be biting at your ankles and and going at you. And uh, even a guy named in Sue Stobitz, last name Stobitz, he was a really tough player to play against. Um, that wasn't Brad, was it? I think so. Yeah, Brad. Yeah. yeah. Now yeah. coaches in Sarnia. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, then there's even guys like Theo Peckham. Um, he wasn't a small boy to play against. He wasn't too much fun. Um, and my last couple of years, I always fortunately got to play against him. <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, he was always a tough one to go against. Even guys like Mark Mathot in London, um, always really hard to play against. Uh, again, the list goes on and on because, and again, you look at where their careers went, right? They, they all had great careers for a reason. And it, it was, uh, a lot of great players that, that I played against and played with. So I felt like a dummy for forgetting to ask this question last week when we were talking to Rob Shrimp, because when we were emailing to set up the, the interview, uh, I kind of joked like, hey, I, I broadcast for Kitchener. Don't hold that against me. Ha ha. And he's like, no, I wouldn't hold it against you. But some of the fans behind our bench when I played in Kitchener, you know, I might have some stories about them. I completely forgot to ask. So let me hear from you if there were any buildings that you were in where the fans were particularly um, boisterous. Of course, yeah. I have a, a couple <laughs> of good ones, but why, why people really hated Kitchener at my first year or two, there was no glass or anything behind the benches. So you would have 10 fans in your ear, pretty much like not for us, but for the opposition team. And they would just be giving it to the players. And then we had another guy who was across the rink, who used to be a mayor of a little city, um, in the area. I don't know if he's still there, but he's above the penalty box. And Oh my God, he would just give it to some of the guys too. When they went in the penalty box. Um, 
But for me, where was the tough London was always just a difficult rink just because it, it was a professional, the only rink at the time that was really like that. Um, it was full. They were always excellent. Um, even Sarnia, Sarnia was always like, it would lull you to sleep almost in there sometimes. Um, and then all of a sudden you'd have five guys, the toughest guys in the league coming at you. Cause they had some really tough players those days. Um, Ottawa was always a little bit bad because I'd get heckled about my brother. So I'd always get heckled that I'm not as good as your brother. You suck McGrath. You, you suck like your brother, like things like that. Right. Um, but no, it, I, we didn't have it too, too bad. Cause by then they started closing everything off. Right. So Windsor was bad. Windsor was bad. Actually. I forgot about that. The old rink there had, they had fans over the glass half the time at you. Um, but that was always a pretty tough barn too. We always ask our guests every podcast. <laughs> Anyone who's played at the old Windsor barn, what's your Windsor barn story? What a barn. Yeah, it was great. The thing that I hated about it, it is it had cold showers every time, almost <laughs> cold showers. It's the worst thing after a game. You just, you want to get a nice warm shower and get on the bus and get a meal. And though at that place, you'd be freezing the whole bus ride after it. It's I, I they, guarantee you, they probably turned the hot water off or something. I was going to say, do you think they did it on purpose? Stratford they, did they it had on purpose all have. the time. They had to have. Yeah. <laughs> Dirty pool. You alluded to it earlier, Evan, when you were talking about those guys that you played with and what it meant to win that championship with them in 03. We had Spotter on this podcast a while back, and he said that he would love to see, and, and we're getting awfully close, 20-year anniversary of that championship team. I, I suspect that if the invitation comes out, you're absolutely there for a reason. Not a question. Not a question. Yeah. that uh, Again, I... I'm in Kitchener all the time now for business. Um, I have some new great clients that were old friends. I have some new clients that are new friends. Um, I'm up in Kitchener all the time. Again, I train about five, six of the players. Um, I, I hold Kitchener very close to my heart and it, it's a place that's meant a lot. So anytime we'd have an opportunity or something like that, it would be just incredible. We, we did do something small the last time the Memorial Cup was in Kitchener. Um, which was just absolutely phenomenal. We all had an, uh, it was great. The only two missing were Benoit and Kanko. And um, <laughs> I'd love to see Kanko again, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it, it was, I'd be there in a heartbeat when you, you wouldn't even have to ask me. I'd just show up. Didn't Kanko have the Mohawk for a while? Yeah, the oh, did he ever? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. did he ever? <laughs> so. He was, he was, he was special. That guy could eat. 10 pounds of McDonald's and go score three goals that night. Like it, it was, it was craziness. That guy, he was, he was just a specimen of a man. Yeah. Another special, really special player there too. Yeah. A, a special player amongst a bunch of special players yeah. through that time. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. And, and the way Richie and Kanko kind of worked together was kind of cool. They were really good together. Um, yeah. Even like Nathan O'Navagon on that team. Um, Paul McFarlane wasn't even, he was, in and out of the lineup. That's how good we were. Um, so it was, it was a really good squad. We were lucky. If I can ask, you talked about some of the guys you hated playing against, and I'm going to go back to the Red Wings here because we talked a lot about the, you know, Iserman and how, but did you ever come down one-on-one -on -one with God, Nick Lindstrom? Yeah. And it wasn't a one-on-one. -on -one. It was almost like a one-on-oh. Like he, <laughs> <laughs> I just shouldn't have even have been there. <laughs> just dump it in but, the corner i'm out <laughs> yeah you know what though if you watch 
Nicholas Lindstrom, he's not the most flashy player. He's not the most, uh, he's not the quickest player, but what he did was he did everything well. He did everything well. And he was an extremely smart player, like over the, over the top smart. Um, just to, the, the opportunity to even practice with him again, another just pro, right. There was a reason why he had his career. And when you see these guys come to come to the rink or the office every day, the way they did, um, again, another captain where I didn't get to spend a ton of time with him, but the time that I did see or get to watch him, at least you try to take as much as you can from people like that. I joked about him being a God because they call him the perfect human in Detroit. And he's, he's pretty close in yeah. Sweden. He's a great looking guy. He's strong. He's in shape. He looks like he's 25 still. He's, yeah. he's, he's an athlete. He, even he has some good kids coming up as well too in the game. The way he used to snap down dump-ins out of midair, like people used to drive players nuts. It's crazy, right? And and the only guy I've ever seen shoot like him from the point is Andre Benoit. They 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 could shoot the puck and it would just have eyes. It just got there and it would be nice and easy to tip, or it would just go through the glove, or it, they just got pucks to the net the right way at the right time. Speaking of guys, though, that that found extra lives in the game of hockey, how about Andre Benoit's story from what he was doing with you guys in Kitchener to Europe and back to the NHL? And I mean, incredible. There was talk almost that Benny's career was going to end after Kitchener. And he all of a sudden he he had a great AHL career. He had a great European career. Um, I actually introduced him to his wife that is now wife in Kitchener. Cause she, we went to school um, and it, she was good friends with my wife. Her, uh, her dad is Rick Wamsley. So we were all went to school together and then Kelly came to Kitchener and I introduced Kelly to Andre on a blind date and uh, they didn't like each other at first. And then three <laughs> months later, three months later, they got back together or got together again. And, and kind of the rest is almost history. She was a part of go? our, Sorry, where'd you go for on that oh, first date? Do you remember? I didn't go on it. Oh, they just went. Okay. I just, sent, like I just sent them. I don't He's need the to be the third. I don't need a third wheel on that. <laughs> no, I thought you brought Madison. It was a double date there. No, no, no. She was living away, so unfortunately, not. No. Kelly was part of our broadcast crew on Rogers TV back in those exactly. days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. She wild. was just getting into it. Yeah, small yeah. world, eh? It's, fl- <sighs> it's time is flying. I know, and here we are, like chatting and it feels honestly evan it feels so recent I know, so I recent know. to say 20 years ago exactly 19 years ago or whatever it's like you got to be kidding me right so when you think back on that memorial cup and i think you kind of alluded to it earlier because and we all get this as we get a little bit older you, you don't know like you're a 16 year old kid you're your first year in the ontario hockey league and you're cruising to a memorial cup in quebec but as you look back now and reflect on the 13 years of pro hockey is that memorial cup a highlight the highlight yeah i think so i think that's that's the number one it, it's a tough championship to win um as a young man growing up i like i said I, I wish i was a little bit older to experience it just because i don't think i got i didn't soak it all in like i, I should have um but yeah like i've had a lot of individual accomplishments that I'm really proud of as well. Um, but definitely a Memorial cup's got to be at least one, two up there. Not, no question. You should have soaked it in like Royce soaked it in. I, I have it on very good authority that it was a little bit of a late 
late departure for the bus because somebody wasn't back on it after that championship. I can't believe, yeah, I can't believe you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> you hear things over time. You hear that. I don't, I'm not saying what he was doing or what was going on. I just know that somebody had to, where's, where's Roisey? We were all, we were all sitting on the bus and he wasn't at the hotel yet. <laughs> so he, he definitely got it getting into that bus. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't think there was a whole lot of sleep given that time. Cause then we got back and right away we had thousands of fans at the airport. And then we got on this bus downtown to get back into the, the parade and everything. Oh, it was two or three days of mayhem, I guess you could say. Just on the heels of that, can you expand? Because you guys just talked to, you know, 20 years. It, Kitchener hasn't won a Memorial Cup since then. Oh, rub it in, so, Oh, I'm just, no, I'm just pointing it out. that they The fans it. like so, to point that out, yeah. Yeah, so for someone like me, who at that age wasn't worried about going to watch, you know, a parade, yeah. what was that experience like as a Kitchener Ranger in this city winning a Memorial Cup? Take us through it. Well, again, it, it was a different world, right? Like it, there were no cell phones, there were no videos, there were no Instagram. So people wanted to be there. They wanted to see it. They wanted to be part of it. Um, and all I remember is we were in this red double-decker bus from the rink to the city hall and thousands and thousands of fans up and down the road, like for, for, for miles. Like it wasn't just one little area. It was the whole street. Um, it was special, right? It, it's a special moment. You, a lot of people will never experience moments like that. And, and we're really lucky to have that, um, to pull up and to have everybody in the city downtown there and in the middle. And it, it, we were probably a little abbreviated. Some of us were like the older guys, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was an experience that like, you'll never, you'll never forget. And, and the people that you shared it with, it's, it's, um, it's just special. I guess special is the best word you can really say for it. The next time you're in uh, Kitchener on a Friday and just happen to be at a rink, you better make your way up to the broadcast booth to say hi to the two bald guys. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I've been, I've been talking to a bunch of people lately. I, I have a, we have a baby due in a couple of weeks, so life is going to get a little bit busier around here, but I, I've, there's a bunch of people I want to get up to see. And, and like I said, see some of the kids that I'm training as well. So, you know, I'll be up there to see you. That'll be your second, Evan. Is that right? Will be, yeah. 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 Man on man defense now, buddy. Well, you know what? I have two girls. So my first one's like the the biggest angel in the world. I'm so blessed and lucky to have her. Um, so if it's half if she's half as good as this one, I'll 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 be ecstatic. Amazing. At the end of every podcast, I always Farzi always gives me the gears because I always have one extra question. <laughs> Go for and it. So this one is just per. I normally save a personal question for last, just something I want to know. Yeah. Um, it has nothing to do with the OHL, but in your American in your American Hockey League career, I think it was. Yeah, you played with a guy named John Morasti. <laughs> Famous among <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Famous amongst amongst uh, the pro ranks and stuff, a fighter through and through. How nasty did you see John Nasty Morasti get? John Morasti was one of the softest, <laughs> nicest guys off the ice that I've ever played with. Come on. Yeah. He, he, he was just, he was one of the first guys when I went to Syracuse that, cause we didn't play them very often. So I didn't really know much about that team. They had Sestito and they had Morasti and they had Harvey who I knew. And they, there was just, it was a tough team, right? Kanopka, 
And, and it was, it was crazy, but John, the first game I'm sitting there and he would always sit at the, the, between the benches. So the benches were right beside each other and there'd be a glass. That's it. And then John Morasti sitting there. So you knew nobody on the other team was going to say much unless it was like Yablonski or somebody that was looking to get pounded. <laughs> um, so the first game he goes out there and right in front of the bench fights and took probably about 10 punches to the face. Like, like when I say to the face, like square to the face and just kept going. And this guy ended up almost every night fighting that way. Everybody hated to play against him. And then I'd go off and I'd go to dinner with him. (laughs) So it was perfect for me. (laughs) I loved it. I loved it. But you know what? Again, another guy that was just really kind to me. I was, I was really lucky and and it was a, a career I was very happy I got to cross paths with because now I get to have stories like that, right? Because everybody knows Big John. That That is a great story. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you you hear stories about him and he's an an absolute animal. Like he's he's the lunatic. Like on the Yeah, like he he would go home in the summer times and go into like MMA fighting and stuff like that. Like he he was he was a a specimen. Like he, he was you didn't want to get caught up with him. He, he was a tough guy. It was almost like a Cam Jansen almost, mm-hmm. right? Like just a let them sleep kind of, kind of night. Please don't, please don't wake the bear kind yeah, of idea. <laughs> and you see the yeah. softer side. So I like that. That was good. That was an awesome story. Yeah. You know what? Great guy. Really, really, really good person. Nice, nice guy. It's been a lot of fun catching up with you uh, on this podcast, Evan. Thanks for making the time. Best to you and Madison with baby number two just around the corner. And we can't wait to see you back at the Mike, Chris, thanks a lot for having me, guys. Like, it's a pleasure. And I appreciate even just reaching out to ask. It's uh, it's an honor to be on. And and anytime I can come on with you guys, I'd love to. It's been great talking, Evan. And now I know what I'm going to do if Steve Eiserman ever is in the same arena as me. I have my in. Cause I can tell him your story. Hey, I had Evan McGrath on. I heard you might, you invited him to dinner. Boom. <laughs> I don't know if you'll remember me still. But... <laughs> no, thanks you... again. This thanks has been great. Thanks guys. Have a great Christmas. Okay. Hi, I'm Emily Roger. And I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.